I'm doing a PhD project at the moment at the University of Leicester, which is mostly in science and technology studies. And I focus very clearly, or <laughs> very messily actually, on the division between epistemology and ontology, and all kinds of problems which that opens up. So, um, STS, I'm not sure if you're familiar, some people are familiar with it, basically began, at least in my kind of idea of it, with the opening up of laboratories of the real scientists to the social scientists who went and had a look at what the scientists, the real scientists actually did in their laboratories and also the social dimensions of it. Uh, that's the message. Um, so this is one aspect. The other aspect is that I will focus on touch primarily in my project. And it centers basically around an ontology of we might not know as much as we think we know. Not to say that we don't know things, but yeah. Um, I will walk you then through my thinking process more than anything else. And I have to apologize in advance because my performance will be a little bit traditional. Uh, although hopefully my content uh, will not be. I made a nice prezi to accompany you, so there's something to look at. So, we still don't know what a body can do. Alright, so within a framework of science and technology studies, as I said, the laboratory has traditionally been the place where science is being done. Uh, acknowledging also the political nature of scientific knowledge, the dominance of male bodies within laboratories had led feminist scholars to question the effectual relationships created by scientific knowledge. Critiques of disembodied and representational conceptions of knowledge show that the affect and other attributions tradi traditionally considered female often suffer from disembodiment and are hence left out of consideration. The contribution of feminist critiques to a framework of STS leads to an appropriation of scientific knowledge as embodied and situated. Furthermore, these critiques of science um, not, only refer, not only refer to an objectivity which cannot originate from an all-seeing God trick, as Haraway would say, but who also not presuppose the objects and subjects of the world before relating to them. So in other words, knowledge construction should shun a priori organizations of monolithic <coughs> subjects and objects. Feminist thought on science and technology leads to a study of science which is primarily ontogenetic rather than epistemic, and thus looks at the entanglement between nature and our understanding of nature. So the construction of scientific knowledge becomes an embodied and situated event more than anything else. So embodiment, and in particular touch, often remain unaddressed in studies of scientific knowledge because embracing concepts like situatedness, entanglement, and effect makes definite categorical representation more difficult, or perhaps even impossible. To give an example in her work on the meeting point of seeing and touching, uh, Karen Barat addresses the scanning tunneling microscope, which is a microscope which gathers a plethora of information by opening up molecules by an electrical current and consequently touching these molecules thereby moving beyond the limits of sight. If you zoom in that much, there's a limit to how far you can zoom in. And this, this scanning tunneling microscope can move beyond that by touching, opening up molecules and actually touching them. Another example is uh, Myers and Jumet in their research on scientists who uh, make models of complex molecules, computer models often, in order to find out how they work, explain how the bodies of scientists are used in body ex bodily experiments. So these models can actually be interacted with by means of haptics. Um, these body experiments transmute daily life stories of the affected scientists into scientific hypotheses. There are actually scientists who, if you 
do something with a molecule which you shouldn't be supposed to be doing or which will break the molecule, they react like, oh no, don't do this to the molecule, you're breaking it. There's an effectual relationship there with uh, the actual, actual object. Um, in this sense, haptics, or haptics serves as an experimental activity for the body to enact knowledge. These events of knowledge construction are comprised of impressions, transfers of intensity, and reciprocal mediations of perception. In other words, events are about touch and being touched. Explication of embodied knowledge creation seems necessary in order to give more rigorous accounts of what it means to do science on the one hand, and consider the effectual relationship between bodies, the social and the scientific on the other hand. So, so far, within this framework of science and technology studies, uh, which takes haptics and effect as focal points of research, to research the role of the body as well, the body of the scientist in the aesthetic, more aesthetic creation of scientific knowledge. Exploring the ontological ground further, we have phenomenology, which opens up a philosophical way of thinking about uh, embodiment in non-representational terms and in an emerging way. This meet, means, in an ontological language, that the material, bod material body is simultaneously located in, a su in the subjective as well as in the objective. So no clear distinction can be made. Um, this breach in duality was traditionally bridged by the mind, and it is, it is only with phenomenology that the body is included in its own self-organizing <coughs> system. Before that, I mean, philosophy before that uh, traditionally solved these things with the mind, for instance, Kant and also... Uh, uh, other philosophies since Plato, really. Um, although phenomenology contributes greatly to embodied research in this way, it seems to fail to take the body as a self-enacting entity, as a self-enacting entity within a messy, molecular situatedness in which ontology and knowledge are being crafted together. So it takes the body as uh, a non-representational entity, but not as a self-enacting entity in that sense. It is the aim of my project, then, to return to the body as an event, which, through its enactment, creates and intertwines knowledge and ontology. Um, a concept like, them, like embodied is then problematic, because it might not well suit, since it aims to keep the body as a passive addendum still. You are embodied as a passive addendum. So you have alternatives like bodily, which are more active, um, and I'm still figuring out if there are different concepts which might be better suited to explain this. So, the inclusion of bodily knowledge creation in our, our understanding of science seems crucial in order to move beyond the groove of modernity, by means of which nature is always divided up before researching it. Nature-culture, objective-subjective, mind-body, natural-fabricated, affect and intellect are examples of ontological bifurcations. This bifurcation takes dualism, dualisms as opposing polar dogmas, instead of as different points on one bodily continuum. Hence, the relating of objects by a body in the scheme of crafting of knowledge could be understood as the creation of a new hybrid body by following encounters of scientists with whatever enters into relationality. It then becomes a question in what sense this hybrid body can be transformative and a crafting power regarding the wider society and social or social uh, situations. Contrary to Richard Sennett's definition of a craftsman as a dignified yet modest, prideful and reflective being who is occupied with the maturing of skills for a greater good, a more ontological sensorium might be required of a scientific craftsman in order to provide transformations. So in this project the question is raised how the body of the scientist const constitutes and enacts the way scientific knowledge is created, 
by focusing on the ontogenetics of being touched. In other words, something happens when scientists touch their devices, their objects. Um, something is created in that sense already there, and not only in the representations of that knowledge afterwards in scientific journals, conference representations, etc., which are heavily framed by all kinds of institutions, uh, funding problems, etc. Um, ontogenetics then refers to the translation of different things, relating bodies of scientists and objects, colleagues, buildings, apparatuses and scientific training, and the production of new knowledge within that very network. Here, the production of new knowledge does not define the constructed knowledge, or attempt to frame it before the event of knowledge construction occurs. Rather, knowledge displaces itself in a network by means of, of events of translation. These perpetual translation might, translations might refer to the world-making abilities of touch and being touched. This is also what Simon Penny was addressing in the beginning, I think that art opens up or adds to worlds, which I would argue science does as well, at least some forms of science can do as well. Uh, so this summer I will be joining a few archaeologists who, do, who are doing their excavations in Scotland. The practice of archaeological science is difficult to disconnect from bodies rather blindly touching and searching for things in the dirt. Strangely, even archaeological textbooks are being swept up in a modern storm of divisions, telling their readers that archaeology is a science occupied with understanding humankind and the recording, deciphering and classifying of findings. It is we the archaeologists, the textbook claims, who have to make sense of the things we find. Yet, does the making of sense start one-directionally with us or with the cate categories already in place in the discipline? Furthermore, the making of sense appears completely contradictory with more immediate sensing. Do we humans make smells, affections, feelings? Or do we make knowledge by means of how we are affected by these things? We smell, we are affected and we, have, we feel. So the making of sense is a very com contradictory Thing in that sense. So assuming that all knowledge in this sense is either tacit or rooted in tacit knowledge, the question is how archaeological research involves being touched by their findings as much as it involves them digging through the earth searching for their artifacts. Although separating the natural from the cultural and archaeological excavations is to a certain extent inevitable, because you have to decide what you're going to look at also before you're going to a certain extent and what you deem interesting what is interesting to you and what isn't interesting to you. Archaeologists working on my visiting site in Scotland will be more concerned with how and why these separations occur. These archaeologists focus on the conceptual messiness around the enduring materialism of their ob objects. Research at the site necessarily touches on the crafting of these objects and their translation into scientific knowledge by different means than a distant gaze of the professor or philosopher. Part of the constructed objects we are going to look at are rocks and stones in all kinds of shapes. We will be looking at how to get a feel for seemingly randomly misplaced stones and objects, and how experienced archaeologists <coughs> can tell which stones are moved by people and which are moved by natural events, even long after the event, without being able to explicate how they know this. Furthermore, archaeologists will be occupied with test bidding at the site, meaning the exploration and discovery discovery of potential new excavation sites, which is a very interesting phenomenon as well. How do they, how do you know where interesting things will be? This site in particular features a democracy of interpretation, so it attempts to destabilize the authority of the professorial voice as opposed to the diggers, 
who often have no active say in the translation of the objects they actually excavate. Traditionally, not hard to imagine, I guess, the diggers did the work and the professors standing and looking down at what they were doing would say, this goes there, that goes there, and would interpret how these objects are actually um, classified. So questions regarding the construction of objects in, in the social material sense will be central to my approach. Objects are then defined as things which exhibit a certain endurance. They are not things which can be disregarded. Instead, they stick around and enact their own force on the knowledge they co-construct with archaeologists and others in a network of knowledge making. So in an actor network theory sense of things, one could say that objects are actors themselves. How long they stick around for as actors might not be up so much to the meaning human, humans ascribe to them as to what Whitehead calls the patience of the environment. Human hubris perhaps dictates a managerialism and a drive to control objects and their environment and to classify them into certain categories. Perhaps instead, the environment exhibits patience while at the same time not losing its volatile and uncontrollable aspects of its paradoxical nature. We see this also, for instance, happening in uh, theory of uh, physics, Newtonian theory, which so long has dominated the way we understand gravity and the way we understand forces working on objects, which um, one could say the environment allows this theory and allows these ideas and these objects to exist up until a certain point when they are being problematized, for instance, by quantum mechanics, which says it works a little bit differently, or by Einstein, uh, Einstein's theory. Um, so objects in this sense might be peculiarly synonymous to events, since objects only make meaning in their temporal opening up of a different historical world when infused with archaeologically constructed objects. Hence, it matters greatly how and why modern science separates what can be known from what cannot, cannot be known. What cannot be known will therefore remain unarticulated in conference presentations, research papers, and journal articles. Yet, as we still don't know what a body can do, it might not be too far-fetched to feel even the unknown as a knot of intensities on the skin where of those who are actually digging in the messy, changing, and strongly objective dirt. The trick is then to experimentally implode the excavated objects into their effectual relationships. While following the encounter between objects and archaeologists, I attempt to get to know how both the world is in the object as how the objects are in the world. I use Jumet's theory for this, or one of Jumet's... Uh, I missed that one. One of Jumet's... Um, uh, papers. So dimensions such as portrayed on the slide attempt not to deconstruct the object. It's not a matter of uh, postmodernist philosophical deconstruction, but rather to analyze where and how far its touch reaches. In other words, how long the objects endure and where they endure. While I intend to focus on the bodily organic, basically on the four, uh, first um, four dimensions uh, on the slide, I expect also to mind, find many traces of other dimensions. So the bodily organic dimensions is the metonymical aspect, the metonymical starting point of my research. I'm going to look at how uh, scientists and archaeologists touch their objects, how they deal with it, how they get a feel for them, how they uh, interpret them as well, and then how they are translated and moved in a strong objective sense to different realms. So questions about bodies, uh, relations, and ability, combined with the technological dimension, zooms in on how specific kind of technologies, machines, and bodies touch, and which technologies enable or disable bodies and relations to form and temporarily endure. 
Similarly, adding the mythological dimension shifts the focus on how the previously mentioned bodies, relations and technologies add to a construction of a grand narrative of science with capital S or progress with capital P and modernity most of all, I guess. And in the case of archaeology, also stories about origins and difference. Um, so the last three dimensions on the slide show consequently how the object is known and also what is deemed outside of knowledge, which is a political kind of thing to do. It's a political kind of um, action to say this is inside of knowledge, this is valid scientific knowledge and this is not valid scientific knowledge and you cannot present this in a conference for instance or in a research paper. Um, and how these grand narratives of knowledge are meaningful, what kind of labor and work are actually done in order to incorporate and sustain this knowledge, narrative and technologies. So finally the political and educational dimensions incorporate how bodies are being made, how are they educated, how are they raised into being archaeologists and scientists of whom we can say they have a valid claim to scientific knowledge. So how are they made experts basically and on what criteria? It is important that the object which is studied is as concrete and material as possible in order to keep the connection. And um, my aim is then to look at the practice of archaeology and to treat scientific disciplines as a practice more than anything else. So that got me thinking, what does this actually have to do with art? Which is always a difficult question to answer, I guess. Um, but I came up with an answer in the sense that it has to do with the opening up of worlds in a similar way. A work of art would open up a world. Um, also in the sense of being touched by objects and devices. But perhaps without its, the sentimentality and the romanticism attached to that. As in, that's very touching. It is touching in a way that it affects us, but not perhaps in an emotional level. Um, so in other words, it's about the enfoldings and resistances of the skin as well. What is resisted in the touching of objects? What is enfolded in it, into it? And, um, you know, <coughs> body can be interpreted as anything in that sense, as long as it's something which can be affected by a force. All right, that's all I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> Stop it.